Welcome to the Health Bites Podcast. This podcast features expert speakers presenting on topics of interest to all of our listeners, from librarians, public health practitioners, educators, and clinicians. Health Bites is supported by the National Institutes of Health, the National Library of Medicine, and the Network of the National Library of Medicine, Region 3. For more information, please visit us at www.nnlm.gov. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us for October's edition of Health Bites with Region 3. We are pleased to welcome this month's speaker, Dr. Emily Spence. Dr. Emily Spence is the Associate Dean for Community Engagement and Health Equity in the UNTHSC School of Public Health. Dr. Spence's research focuses on health disparities, community empowerment, program evaluation, and understanding community strengths and needs. She utilizes participatory approaches to support the design, development, and implementation of solution-focused community interventions. Dr. Spence received her bachelor's and master's degrees in social work from Florida State University and her PhD from Florida International University. She is also certified as a community health worker instructor in Texas. In today's Health Bites, our speaker will be giving a presentation on making the link between structural inequalities and health disparities, implications for community-based helping professionals. Thank you for being our guest speaker this morning, and I will go ahead and turn everything over to you. All right, so I am going to be talking about making the link between structural inequities and health disparities. I want to also honor the contributions of uh, my co-author in our design team. My co-author is Dr. Teresa Wagner. She is um, an associate professor in the School of Public Health, and she is also the director of Safer Care Texas. This session provides a careful overview of historical events and current research associated with structural inequities and health in inequity. By highlighting intersections between disparate policies and practices across sectors, including healthcare, education, criminal justice, employment, and ec economic sectors, this session will help community members engage in productive dialogue of complex and sensitive issues. This session will offer opportunities to gain additional virtual training at no cost, which provides practical techniques to promote health activation and empowerment using a whole health framework. We are so grateful for the network of the National Library of Medicine Region 3, which sponsored the development of our training modules that we will be discussing today. The material that I will be presenting is an overview of three training modules, which were completed in partnership with a design team of CHWs, including Luz Chavez, Denise Hernandez, Carlene Thomas-King, Priscilla Washira, and Tammy Weir. I also want to acknowledge the Division of Academic Innovation for hosting these modules on our HSC Learning Plus platform. You can find these training modules um, at HSC Learning Plus. I'm hoping that my QR code here will work. I learned recently that they expire. So um, I, I made this one again for the second time this week and, and hopefully it will work for you. If not, just Google HSC Learning Plus and look for um, the, the modules called Empowering Community Health Workers and Trusted Messengers to Address Inequalities. It offers 4.5 credits for community health workers, and there are many other great free trainings available uh, at HSC Learning Plus for your exploration. So the training that I'm providing an overview or a little taste of today is uh, this three module course where module one talks about structural inequities and their influence on health. Module two talks about implicit bias and module three 
addresses community empowerment and health activation. So you may wonder, what do historical structural inequities have to do with the health of communities today? A lot of people think that the past is in the past and we shouldn't focus on those things. We should just be moving forward. But uh, in today, I hope I can convince you that there's a lot of research evidence to indicate otherwise. So today's presentation provides an overview of these historical factors and leads to insights about what we can do today to address health inequities. So many of us learn the history of the Mayflower's voyage to America with 102 people who fled England to create what they called the New World. We may have also learned about the indigenous people who were residing on these lands prior to the arrival of these pilgrims and who were later violently pushed off their land. But today I'd like to start with an American story that began in 1618 and 1619 in Angola, Africa, when 350 African residents were captured by Portuguese kidnappers and forced to march over 100 miles to the coastal port of Luanda. They were forced to board the San Juan Bautista, a ship that was bound for Veracruz, Mexico. English pirates, also known as privateers, attacked the ship and hijacked 50 to 60 African hostages, who were then placed on the pirate ships, the White Lion and the Treasurer, and those sailed to Virginia. They landed several days apart in late August of 1619 in what was known as Point Comfort, Virginia. Approximately 20 to 30 Africans survived this voyage and were sold to wealthy planters in Virginia, even though there were no laws at that time that sanctioned the enslavement of human beings. However, by 1664, laws were enacted to ensure that people from African descent would not be free in America. By 1690, all of the American colonies had enacted laws that allowed for the enslavement of Africans. Even then, there were three times as many indentured servants, and what distinguished indentured servants from people who were enslaved was the color of their skin. The transatlantic enslavement of Africans began in 1501 and continued for 366 years. Approximately 12 million Africans were kidnapped from their homeland with the majority taken to Brazil and the Caribbean and approximately 400,000 were brought to the United States. And this begins the origins of health disparities that we see among Black Americans that persist today. So why is something that happened over 400 years ago still impacting our country today? First, there is evidence that trauma is transmitted from one generation to the next through biological, genetic, and behavioral pathways. This is a growing body of research with evidence associated with trauma experienced by Native Americans, Black Americans, and Holocaust survivors. In fact, trauma experienced by one generation has been demonstrated to modify the epigenome for two generations thereafter. Second, a large portion of health outcomes are associated with social determinants of health, such as education income, assets, and criminal justice interactions. And many disparities in these social determinants of health can be traced back to historical events, policies, and practices. And third, there continues to be evidence that Americans hold biased and prejudicial beliefs and engage in discriminatory behaviors that harm human health today and contribute to health disparities. One study examined the relationship between enslavement records from 1860 and stroke mortality. 
They found that the areas with the highest density of enslaved humans were most strongly correlated with stroke mortality for Black Americans, but not for white Americans. Congruent with this study is the recognition that high blood pressure is a major contributor to stroke and is highest among Black Americans who also tend to be diagnosed earlier in life with hypertension. This study warrants a closer look at the intergenerational trauma and epigenomics literature. So while the study of epigenomics is complex and far outside my area of expertise, a basic definition is that the epigenome refers to the chemical factors that do not change the genomic sequence itself, but instead affects the ways that genes are expressed. The epigenome is shaped by both genetic variation and environmental experiences. So when epigenomic compounds attach to DNA and modify their function, they are said to have marked the genome. These marks do not change the sequence of the DNA, but rather they change the way that cells use the DNA's instructions. These marks are then sometimes passed on from cell to cell as the cells divide, and they are passed down from one generation to the next. I really like this quote by Dr. Dana Dolanoy, who studies epigenomics, who says that if you think of your genes as your body's hardware, your epigenome is the software that tells them how to work. It's essentially the instruction book on top of the genome. So what's important about this is that these protein structures on the epigenomes are actually increasing the likelihood that people over time will be more likely to experience chronic disease and cancer and other uh, disparities associated um, with being Black or Hispanic in America. MedPix is a free, open access, online database of medical images, teaching cases, and clinical topics. This resource includes over 12,000 patient case scenarios, 9,000 topics, and nearly 59,000 images. Students and practitioners can use the case studies as practice, and physicians may earn continuing medical education credit. So going back to the study on stroke mortality and enslavement, there may be in fact cultural, environmental, and behavioral contributors to this relationship, but there may also be actual physical epigenomic changes passed from one generation to the next that puts Black Americans at higher risk for stroke and chronic diseases. This is a conceptual framework developed by the World Health Organization that helps to explain the complexity of health inequities. So you'll notice on the left side that they begin with the structural determinants of health, such as government and public policies, economics and governance structures, and culture. These then intersect with social class and race and gender to influence education and occupation and income, which in turn influence people's material circumstances, as well as their behaviors, their biology, and their psychosocial factors. Ultimately, these have a collective impact on health and well being. So I want you to pause here for a moment and ask you to ponder the explanations that you may have heard about race-based health disparities. When I talk to communities and do focus groups, I often hear things like, oh, it's because we eat too much bacon. That's why we have problems with um, heart disease and stroke. And um, I, I hope that after today, you recognize that the bacon explanation is not adequate. Um, and, and for one, when you start doing much larger studies, you'll find, uh, or looking at larger longitudinal studies that control for a lot of different factors, you'll find that some of those dietary differences um, become less important as explanations for disparities. So, so we know that diet impacts health, that is not disputable, but it is not an adequate 
explanation for racial disparities in health outcomes. So next we'll continue our historical journey and we'll leap ahead to the first half of the 1900s. So let's talk about mistrust. There are many, many reasons why Black and African Americans have lost trust in the systems that are supposed to govern, support, protect, and care for them. One of the most well-known is the Tuskegee experiment, which was carried out by the United States Public Health Service. It started in 1932 before penicillin was used to treat syphilis. Black men were recruited into the study and promised free medical care, free meals, and burial insurance. They were told they were being treated for bad blood, which is a return, which was a term used to refer to a variety of different ailments. When penicillin was recommended, became the recommended treatment for syllabus, syphilis, syllabus, stepping into my educator role, um, the participants were still given placebos such as aspirin and mineral supplements. The public health service researchers convinced the local physicians not to treat the participants for their syphilis. This was done to track the disease's full progression. The public health service's goal was to track participants until they had all died and autopsies could be performed and the project data could be analyzed. By the time the study was shut down, 28 people had died from syphilis, 100 more had passed from related complications, and at least 40 spouses had been infected, and 19 children got the disease at birth. This study led to the creation of institutional review boards and the requirement that informed consent occur before research studies can begin. During the same time period, newly elected US President Franklin Roosevelt promised to end the Great Depression through a series of government initiatives known as the New Deal. One of these was government-insured homeownership programs. But to implement these programs and ensure the benefits favored white families, they created color-coded maps to rank the loan worthiness of neighborhoods in over 200 cities and towns in the United States. These federal policies and practices systemically undervalued neighborhoods based on the proportion of Black or African-American households in them. They were then exacerbated by adding predatory real estate practices and discriminatory local policies to ensure that housing-based asset development opportunities were restricted to white families only. Collectively, these factors resulted in grossly neglected communities and prevented wealth building among African-American families. As a side note, I recently visited the African American History Museum in Washington, D.C., and learned that after slavery was abolished, Congress created the Freedmen's Savings and Loan Bank in 1865. It was managed by white trustees and promoted newly freed African Americans a safe place to deposit their money. Due to mismanagement, it collapsed in 1874 and depositors lost $3 million in savings. Slightly more than half of that was repaid, but the amount that was never repaid, $1.3 million, is the 2020 equivalent of $30 million today. So back to Redline, if you visit the Digital Scholarship Library of Richmond, Virginia, you'll find a project that examines the connection between Redline maps and the CDC identified regions that are considered socially vulnerable today. The persistence of disparities is associated with redlining um, on, on today's maps. So numerous studies have demonstrated correlations between redlined areas and poor health, economic, and social outcomes. Redlined regions are associated with lower life expectancy, poor mental health, breathing disorders, and other chronic diseases. 
this graph shows racial differences in assets between 2007 and 2019. And you'll notice that the pattern of assets of white families at the high red bar uh, is more than four times that of black families and five times that of Hispanic families. So this gap uh, in assets is something that persists today. And even if you break that data down by different levels of education, you'll see that racial differences in net worth are still substantial for households among families with a bachelor's degree or higher. So you see the same exact pattern, even with people have, who have high levels of education and you would presume uh, would be better off because of that education. Homeownership gaps still persist today. This is a chart from 1994 to 2018 demonstrating um, that Black and Hispanic Americans have the lowest rates of homeownership as compared uh, to white non-Hispanic Americans at the top of the graph. And finally, gaps in earnings play out similarly with median wages for people who are white or Asian being substantially higher than wages for Black or Hispanic individuals who again have bachelor's degree or higher levels of education. So let's now move to criminal justice inequities. There are so many, black men are more likely than white men to be wrongly incarcerated for crimes they didn't commit and are later exonerated for. They are more likely to have false evidence planted on them and they are more likely to be shot by police while unarmed. One study that I found particularly compelling is an analysis of the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which is otherwise known as the War on Drugs. This study examined incarceration and college enrollment rates following the passage of the act. The results suggest that Black males had a 2.2% point decrease in the relative probability of college enrollment after the passage of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. In other words, they were 10% less likely to enroll in college after that act. Enrollment rates in college were climbing for Black men and women in the 1970s and the early 80s, but by 1990, Black students were less likely to enroll in college than their white peers at all income levels. And between 1980 and 1989, arrests of Black individuals for drug sales or use rose by 219% when compared to the increase in the arrest rate for white individuals of just 56%. Ironically, much of this disparity was driven by departures from those federal guidelines whereby black men were more likely than white men with similar criminal histories to receive punishments that were actually harsher than the mandated federal penalties. Other studies have shown that black uh, and Hispanic individuals receive longer prison sentences than white persons for similar crimes in both federal and state courts. What makes the incarceration inequities even more disturbing is the difference in arrests and drug use by race. The data on these slides show that for 2001 to 2010, people who are black were far more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than people who are white. However, when you examine marijuana usage for young adults, you see that the use by people who are, are white is consistently outpaced um, is consistently higher than the use by people who are Black. An even closer examination of college enrollments is especially concerning in medical schools. About 6% of medical students are Black, and in this graph you see that in 1986, among Black graduates of medical schools, 
males represented a much higher proportion than females at that time. Since 1986, again, which aligns with the war on drugs, female graduates have increased by 53% and male graduates have declined by 39%. If you compare these data to all medical students, in 1986, 70% of medical students were male, and by 2005, that declined to 51% and has remained relatively stable since then, indicating that overall medical schools have gotten much closer to achieving gender equity for all races except Black individuals. So in 2015, Black and African American students represented 6.4% of all students accepted into medical school and 5.7% of all medical school graduates. The number of Black or African-American students accepted into medical school was 1,268 in 1996 and climbed slightly to 1,396 in, in 2015. If you compare these changes to actual population growth, this represents a decline in the anticipated acceptances, which should have been closer to 1700. The percentage of Black Americans in the U.S. has remained relatively stable, hovering between 12 and 13 percent, which essentially indicates that if medical school enrollments were to mirror the U.S. demographics, we should have twice as many Black students as we do today. So why am I focusing on medical school enrollment and graduates? Because it literally has the capacity to save lives. In a very large study done on infant mortality, researchers found that Black newborn babies were far more likely to survive if they were cared for by Black physicians than when cared for by white physicians. In fact, the mortality penalty is cut in half. In another study, researchers conducted a large experiment comparing patients who were randomized to either be treated by Black physicians or white physicians, and those treated by Black physicians were significantly more likely to agree to diabetes and cholesterol screenings than those assigned to white physicians. The authors concluded that by increasing the number of Black physicians, we could start closing gaps in health inequities including deaths associated with heart disease. Another reason why it's important to increase representation in healthcare systems is the research showing that bias and discrimination still occurs. So while we talk about issues of mistrust stemming from atrocities committed in earlier decades, we still have to recognize that there are valid reasons why mistrust is still present today. I suspect many of you have heard of or taken the implicit bias tests that were developed by researchers from Harvard and the University of Virginia in the late 1990s. Implicit biases are those attitudes and preferences we have that we may not be overtly aware of. Many people believe that they are unbiased, when in fact implicit bias tests demonstrate that they have preferences for a certain group or biases against a certain group. These researchers have amassed a huge data set and conducted many studies showing that implicit biases are highly correlated with actual discriminatory practices and beliefs. In a study of physicians, Researchers showed that doctors tend to have a preference for white Americans over black Americans, and this was true for all groups except black physicians. Other studies have demonstrated actual evidence of discriminatory treatment. Black patients are less likely to be given effective pain treatment than white patients. In a large Veterans Administration study, Black men with the most aggressive forms of prostate cancer were less likely to be given known effective treatment options, despite the fact that everyone in the VA had equal access to care. 
In healthcare settings, we continued to be caught in a cycle of discrimination and mistrust, where Black patients are given valid reasons to mistrust physicians of other races, and as a result, may delay or not fully engage in treatment because of those discriminatory experiences. We know that for all races, socioeconomic status and health behaviors such as diet and physical activity impact health outcomes. I'm not at all disputing that our life circumstances as well as our, as well as our life choices impact our health. However, for Black Americans, the disparities in mortality and lifespan persist even after you adjust for socioeconomic status and health behaviors. In the last decade, a growing body of research has focused on the relationship between experiencing discrimination and the physical stress that results in the body. One of the ways that this is measured is called allostatic load. Allostatic load is measured by combining a set of physiological measurements in the body that are indicative of chronic stress. The term was coined in 1993 and includes measurements of biomarkers in the body's neuroendocrine, cardiovascular, immune, and metabolic systems. When our bodies are repeatedly exposed to stress, it responds by releasing hormones, which in turn trigger an inflammatory response. This involves changes in the release of cortisol, which impacts blood sugar, immune reactions, and blood pressure. Over time, a high allostatic load contributes to increased likelihood of heart disease and other markers of heart health. This stress also shows up in the body in the measurement of telomeres. Telomeres are the end caps that protect our chromosomes when our cells divide. They shorten as we age and are recognized to be a sign of the general health of a person. Numerous studies are now showing that experiencing racial discrimination is associated with higher allostatic load and shorter telomeres. This has also been referred to as weathering. Researchers now believe that weathering is a strong contributor to race disparities in lifespan, chronic disease, and chronic disease mortality. This brings us back to the question of diet and other lifestyle factors that influence health. In a recent study of cardiovascular health behaviors that spanned 30 years, nearly all of the race-based health disparities were explained by socioeconomic status, psychosocial factors such as depression and race discrimination, and neighborhood factors. In other words, when examining racial differences in diet, physical activity, and smoking, these differences were almost entirely explained by education, income, net worth, neighborhood poverty, racial discrimination, quality of life, depression, neighborhood racial segregation, neighborhood resources, and neighborhood cohesion. Overall, this study attributed the differences in cardiovascular health between Black and white participants as being approximately 50% due to socioeconomic status, 34% due to the neighborhood environment, and 27% due to psychosocial factors, including discrimination, stress, and depression. If you're feeling a bit depressed and overwhelmed right now, I feel you. If you're having a yes, but thoughts, that's okay too. I've spent years looking at this research and it's been really important for me to continuously reflect on what I believe, what I've been taught, and where my thoughts and ideas originate. We all live in this society and have been educated in systems that don't always provide us with full or accurate information. I encourage you to question me and everyone else and be a consumer of your own knowledge.
there is um, there's a quote from Lao Tzu that often gets uh, or people say is often mistranslated, saying that the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. But what some historians have said is that two more slightly accurate translations are that the journey of a thousand miles begins beneath your feet and even the longest journey begins where you stand. I think in this work, as we are trying to improve health equity and close health disparities, this is a really important quote as it helps you consider that our work depends first on our own abilities to reflect and consider where we may be embodying beliefs around structural inequities that we don't necessarily even see as having anything to do with over racism. The human brain is incredibly complex and is constantly taking in pieces of information. And yet we're really only aware of about 40% of all of that input into our brains. What this means is that as humans, we are predisposed to having biases that may contribute to these disparities in health outcomes. Our explicit biases or, or actual overt discrimination is a lot easier to identify than those implicit biases. In fact, one of the biases that I have found to be really important to consider our affinity biases. When we are hiring people or building teams of people, we often gravitate to things that are familiar. And if you reflect on your own social network, you may want to consider whether or not you have familiarity biases that maybe you say, you know, we often hear in hiring, like this candidate was a better fit for us often a better fit falls along racial lines and, and, and that is due to the affinity biases. So as much as people would like to believe that they are making fair decisions or that they are um, not considering race at all, generally that's not what studies of implicit bias actually show. So what can we do to change? Our, our modules that are in the HSC Learning Plus platform focus on several different levels of change. Um, we start with the micro level, or actually we start at the macro level and consider issues of public policy um, and policy change that can address health. And then we consider issues, what can you do in the community? And then what can you do as an individual? Advocacy and organizing and policy is incredibly important right now. Um, what we've been seeing is that there's many changes underway um, in our higher education environment. We are all having to change a lot of things that we do right now because of Senate Bill 17 being passed, which takes effect um, and in January 1st. And there's similar things occurring at local levels in school boards um, and county commissions. So, so I urge everyone to pay attention to those small policy changes that are make, being made at the local level um, on up to the state and federal level. Voting is the one thing that will help us make decisions that are, are best likely to improve the health of all of us. We really need to get people out and participating in this process. Um, the ETR organization also offers a nice perspective about health equity and focuses on factors related to relationships and networks, systems of power, physiological difference, and individual factors. So from an individual perspective, 
we first in our training focus on how you go about fostering a sense of belonging. This can, can be compared to the things that we might do that are called othering. How do we make people feel separate? So we offer some strategies to foster a sense of belonging in your day-to-day -day work life and in your personal life. We also address the inflammatory response. If you go back to thinking about the allostatic load, and weathering and telomere length, it's really important for groups who have been historically discriminated against to be able to start addressing that natural inflammatory response that incurred, that's occurring in their bodies through mechanisms of self-care and other strategies. It's also really important to help people find resources and get access to care, particularly in communities that lack resources and healthcare resources. Um, and then finally, our individual strategies in our training program provide some guidance on how people can be trained to talk to their healthcare providers to get the care that they need. One of the things that our institution is doing is adopting a whole health approach. And in this approach, we put people at the center of their health. So it's a people-centered approach. And it recognizes that health is influenced by all of these different factors, community, spiritual, physical, self-care, mental health, environmental, and financial. Um, the whole health model has been adopted in several other systems, including um, the Veterans Administration. And, um, and there are a lot of excellent resources online and in our training program that we have links to that can help you identify a whole health approach to improving health activation and reducing health disparities. So I'm gonna end the show here and turn my camera back on. and I'll take questions that we have. Yes, awesome. Thank you so much for the wonderful presentation. It's definitely very eye-opening to hear about all the inequities and uh, things that come on uh, within our society. Um, so if you have any questions, please go ahead and put them into the chat. I will go ahead and read them off. Uh, for Dr. Spence to go ahead and answer. Um, there has already been a good amount of uh, communication within the chat, everyone's sharing resources, so that's really good. Thank you all for uh, communicating with us. Uh, so I have a question here by, uh, uh, let's see. Well, no questions yet, but I see that Ann Carter has her okay. hand up. Do you mind putting your question within the chat? And while Anne is putting her question in the chat, here's a uh, another question. Um, can you say more about the resource you mentioned called Digital Scholarship Library of VA? Yeah, if you're curious about this, I would encourage everybody to Google it and find it online. Um, what they've what they've done at this library is. Um, basically taken all of the red line maps in the United States and done correlational analysis with health disparities today. And so uh, you can go there and find, like I went in, I got the city of Fort Worth, and then it, it basically displays these patterns using um, visual imaging, showing the relationship between the red lined areas and um, areas where there are health disparities today. It's alarming, but but really, uh, it's a it's a fantastic tool. I believe there might be another question coming in. Uh... So we we don't mind waiting a few more minutes for questions if anyone else has any. 
Yeah, I see a comment that, you know, people see different pieces of this in different places and and this pulls it all together. That That is exactly what I've tried to do with this because um, we get so distracted by pieces of information that it's when you start systematically linking it together that you really realize how much um, historical experiences and ongoing stress and discrimination is uh, contributing to health disparities today. And uh, what I remember is during the COVID pandemic, when we started seeing disparity, racial disparities in mortality, you had a lot of people coming on on the media, on TV and saying, well, it's because of it's because of diabetes, it's because of what people eat, it's because of what people do. Um, and, and that always really agitates me because I, I feel like it overlooks these systemic factors that continue to contribute to inequities today. Alrighty, we got another question here. Um, a thank you for the presentation, and this is from Anne. As a Black American, they are familiar with impacts of slavery and generational trauma. What studies are there about how U.S. displacement and genocide of Indigenous people has impacted health outcomes and majority mindset? Can you... Oh, I think I just found it. Okay. So there's been some epigenomic studies of um, of U.S. displacement and genocide. That's those are, I think, some of the strongest contributors to our understanding about intergenerational trauma. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm answering that that full question. Um, I I do think if you're if you're wanting to consider the majority mindset, that's a really important part of the reflection process that that many of us internalize beliefs about groups of people that we may not realize have been socialized. Um, I'm really careful, just as an example, I'm really careful about the language that I use. There's a lot of terms, um, even when we, you know, when we're using like black and white terms to compare things that are good or bad, um, there's, there's a lot of terms that we use in day-to-day -day life that are linked to uh, historical enslavement practices or um, or mistreatment of indigenous individuals. So there's another question here. Um, can you talk more about bias embedded in tests such as the Harvard implicit bias test? bias test because most of these tests were predominantly white centric and did not involve cultural and ethnic variables from people of color. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think that um, those, those concerns have been raised and what you'll find when you go on to the implicit bias test now is that there's a much greater variety of tests. So while they may have originated with more of a white lens, I, I think what you'll see now that there are just thousands and thousands of, of usages of these tests and, and further analyses with them, um, that, that they have continued to evolve and, and be strengthened over time. But those questions are good. I think that's true for, um, for really all scientific research studies, we have to question who made the tests uh, and whether it's it's really representative or not. I, I do a lot of work in the area of trauma and that's my main complaint about the adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs assessments um, were, were originally done with a predominantly white middle-class population 
Um, and, and when you consider um, trauma in disinvested communities, it looks a lot different. And, and we need to have our, our scientific methods realigned to ensure that all perspectives and voices are captured. Alrighty, so I know that there are still questions rolling in, but we are going to have to have some time for closing remarks. So I'll do go ahead and do one last question. And it is, have you ever seen a study looking at the impact on a community's health with the pr presence of a public library? Since public libraries offer many of the resources and connections that can help with the social determinants of health. I, I have not seen that study, but I haven't looked for it either. So I think that's a fantastic question. And, and as I understand it, as libraries, you know, as people are using more digital resources and people are thinking about the important roles of libraries and communities, addressing social determinants is, uh, is being elevated as a really crucial factor. So I hope that's something that we will continue to see more of. Awesome, thank you so much. And I think we have time just for one last question here. And that is, how negatively is it expected that the recent ruling on race based on admission decision will exasperate these health problems and how might we better advocate to help offset this pending problem? I, I can only answer that with my opinion, um, for one. And, and I, I am gravely concerned about some of these changes at the federal and the state level. Um, I I think what we need to be doing is ensuring that people are educated and voting and we need to make sure that everyone is voting. We have such low levels of participation in elections, particularly local elections, but really all elections need to have better participation. One of the things that we are doing um, to respond to Senate Bill 17 is focusing more heavily on ensuring that we have representative lived experiences in the work that we do as public health instructors we need um, we need to be we need to be representative of everyone and that includes their lived experiences Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And that is the end of our question portion. If you have any more questions, uh, go ahead and feel free to email us and we'll go ahead and put our email into the chat and we will forward those questions over to Dr. Spence. So if she has time, she could go ahead and answer them for you um, at, a later, at a later date. Um, so thank you everyone for joining us today and a special thanks to Dr. Emily Spence for sharing your expertise with us. And we look forward to seeing you all in our next edition of Health Bites with Region 3. Thank you for listening. Health Bites podcast was produced by the network of the National Library of Medicine, Region 3. This podcast is eligible for one CE from the Medical Library Association. Visit the link in the episode description to claim your MLA CE.